Good morning, Church. My name is Roy, and I am the Bible teacher at Grace Christian School. Grace School. Uh, our uh, verse for today is James chapter one, verses nineteen to twenty-one. That is page one thousand eleven in the Bible pew. Uh, James chapter one, nineteen to twenty-one. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is the word of God. Good morning, church. I know that on a morning like this, some of you came in burdened. Some of you had a rough morning, a rough week. And so we're about to read and study God's Word, and you, you bring lots of things to bear this morning. I'm simply asking that you would go ahead and allow your mind and heart to be renewed by, by God and allow Him to speak in His Word. We are in the the book of James, <clears throat> real wisdom, real faith. James is a pastor writing to Christians in the first century who are facing various trials, as he says in verse 2, not least of which is they're enduring persecution for their faith in Christ. And James writes with a very practical, no-nonsense style. He wants to help us as Christians grow in wisdom and in joy as we navigate life's trials and temptations. And he wants us to have a faith, if you, as we go through the book of James, it's very evident. He wants us to have a faith that is active and real, not just a, a faith that speaks one thing but does another thing. No, James is very concerned that we don't just talk the talk, but that we walk the talk. That we live out what we say we believe. That we have an active faith. And so today, as James has been navigating, talking about trials and temptations, he now jumps to a topic that is connected. It's connected to how we live out in trials and temptations. And he talks about how we listen, how we speak, and our struggle with anger. In this text, James brings up one of the most pressing issues of our day, and that is how we speak. Notice I didn't just say what we speak, I said how we speak. What we say is certainly a part of the challenge, but how we speak, the attitudes behind our words. I don't think I need to convince anyone here that we have a serious problem in our world. And by our world, I mean it, that includes us as a church. And that problem is that intrinsically, we do the opposite of what James teaches us in this text. We are slow to listen meaning we don't listen well. We are quick to speak and we are quick to anger. Are we not? We live in a world where being 
quick to speak and quick to anger gets you more likes on social media, more shares on social media, and it gets you more coverage on Fox News and CNN. The angrier you are, the more time you get on the air. It has become clear over the past few years that we're not just dealing with a deadly pandemic due to COVID. We are dealing with an equally deadly yet more insidiously insidious pandemic due to living in an, what I call what was called an outrage culture. You know what I'm talking about? Outrage culture? Outrage culture is where we hold individuals and or groups accountable for their alleged political or social or religious transgressions and that we do that through public shaming. Someone does something that we think is wrong, says something that we think is wrong, and there's, there's no chance we put them on trial and we publicly shame them and we wash our hands of them. That's it. They're done. And, and there are things, there are, and we saw this week as, as a, someone was giving an account to Congress that even so, the social media giants understand this is a problem and have been unwilling to do the things necessary to rein it in. That, that, that the things that support outrage are, are being quietly filtered out and permeated because outrage sells. In his book, a gentle answer. Our secret weapon in an age of us against them. That's the title of the book. Pastor Scott Sauls, which I've just come in contact with this book, so I'm interested to read more. But here's a quote from it. He says this. Listen carefully. Quote, In our current cultural moment, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, more rewarded than rejected. It is a part of the air we breathe, a native language, a sick helping of emotional food and drink to satisfy our hunger for taking offense, shaming, and punishing. Outrage has become something we can't get away from partly because we don't seem to want to get away from it. The whole idea of being for something has gone out of style. Instead, we prefer to preach an angry gospel of whatever we have decided to stand against. We warm ourselves next to the fire of digital hashtags, ideologically slanted news feeds, political slogans, and religious doctrines, and then, ready, aim, fire. Is that not convicting? It should be for all of us. And here's the danger in something like this. Because as you hear this, as we go through, the danger, the temptation is going to be, this is for somebody else. Who he's talking to. Oh, I know who he's talking to. It's this group. It's that person. And as soon as you've done that, you've done exactly what James is saying don't do. I'm not talking to some individual. You know who I'm talking to? Myself. Us. Collectively. None of us are exempt from having to take an honest look at our words, our anger, and our willingness to obey God's word. So let's jump right in. 
and let God's word warn us and humble us and hopefully shape us into the image of Christ. Lesson number one, listen more and speak less. I'm trying to keep it simple, everyone. James starts by saying, verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers. The word brothers is plural. It means brothers and sisters. Notice he, he starts not by berating them. He's pastoring them. There's a warmth and there's a love in his heart, even though he's about to say some really hard things. Church, please hear me. The elders of this church, your elders, have had to say and do some really hard things. And lately those things feel harder and more complicated than ever before. But I want you to know this. We want you to know this. Please hear our hearts. That we are seeking to preach and to lead and to shepherd out of love. We love you. Deeply and desperately we love you. James says, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Know this, he says. Understand this. He says, this is really important. Let every person, not just leaders, not just those who are on social media, not just the younger generation, it's all their fault, right? Not just the older generation, they just say whatever they want. No, resist the urge to think this message, this teaching is for somebody else. It's for you. He says, let every person. And then he gives this axiom, this, uh, what it probably was a common saying of his day. It certainly reflects Old Testament wisdom in the, in the Proverbs. Let each person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Proverbs 17, 27 says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Proverbs 29, 20 says, Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. James says, Let each person be quick to hear. Literally, quick to hear means hurry up and listen. Hurry up and listen. Anyone who knows me, you know that I tend to be in a hurry. It's, my, it's one of my vices. James is saying, all right, Mark, all right, fast guy, you want to be fast? Be fast to listen. Be quick to stop and listen. And be slow to speak. Meaning, choose your words carefully. Exercise self-control in your speech. The first point is make listening a priority. Being quick to hear means make listening a priority, even above speaking, right? And we all know the old adage that says, God gave us two ears and one mouth because he wants us to listen, what? Twice as much as we speak. We respond before someone has even had a chance finish speaking themselves, don't we? Is that being quick to listen? We respond, okay, you let them finish. We respond before even processing what they said. Oh, I'll let you finish, but I already know what I'm going to say. I'm just waiting. That's not listening. We're not in a duel, figuring out who's going to get the final blow. 
There's no winners and losers. There are only losers in those situations. James says, you want to do something quickly? Be quick to focus on what the other person is communicating. Let me just state the obvious. We are failing at this. As a people, we are failing at this. And, and COVID has not caused it. It has simply revealed it. Most of us live in the exact opposite of this proverb. Why? Why? number of reasons, but I think at, at the core, I think it's because we don't take our own sins seriously enough. We tend to think that we have a better handle on life than others do. It's a form of self-centered pride. We think too highly of our own opinions and our own perspectives, and this leads to an unwillingness to listen and learn from other perspectives. Please understand, a failure to listen is a failure to love. You pick the topic, right? It, we, got play, we, got a bunch, we got a bunch of them now on the table. COVID, masks, vaccines, racial justice issues, politics. We aren't listening well to each other in these areas. Why do you think the news outlets understand that their audience is over here and this audience is over here and so they only speak exclusively to these audiences rather than giving the news, they're giving partisan feedback to the news. And if you watch that for hours upon hours and hours and then you come in here and you, and you hear something, I'm uh, sorry, that is discipling you more than God's word. These topics give us an opportunity to show that our identity and our unity are not rooted in these topics, but in Christ. And our willingness to listen and learn shows that we're letting the gospel, not the world, shape our speech. Church, what do you want more? To be right or to be loving? You need to we need to seriously ask ourselves that question. Do you want to win the argument or do you want to win your brother over? Do you want to prove your point or prove that having the character of Christ is the point? Listen more and speak less. Lesson number two. Understand the root of sinful anger is pride. James says, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Notice he doesn't say, don't be angry. He doesn't say, don't, you, don't get angry at all, because anger is sinful. No. A lot of Christians, a lot of us, and I've talked to, to a number of you already, mistakenly think anger is inherently sinful. And if that were true, if anger were sinful, then God would never be angry, Right? He wouldn't model a sinful characteristic for us. But if you read the Bible, you know repeatedly God gets angry at sin and, in, and, and at injustice in the world, doesn't he? Jesus himself gets angry too. Mark chapter 3. Jesus gets angry, it says, at the hard-hearted religious leaders because they were judging him for healing a man on the Sabbath. He gets angry. He gets angry at the money changers who are in the temple, 
who are, who, are, who are charging an exorbitant rate for Gentiles to come in and exchange their money and they're, and they're making a huge profit. It was wrong. It was extortion. And he overturns the tables in his anger. It was righteous anger, not sinful anger. Anger itself is not the problem. Look at verse 20. James clarifies what kind of anger is the problem. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's man-centered anger. It's selfish anger. There's good anger and there's bad anger. What is anger? Let me just back up a moment. What is anger? I don't think we talk about this much. Anger is the emotional response to do two things, to defend what is right or to confront what is wrong. It's the, it's the as one, one person, but it's the, the energy, the fuel that you need to, to stand up for what is right when you see it not happening or to, or to confront something, the energy needed to, to confront something that is wrong. And so with Jesus, the anger when, uh, that he felt when the religious leaders, the hard religious leaders were condemning him for healing on the Sabbath, he was, he was defending what is right. It was good, it was better to heal on the Sabbath than obey your, some innocuous rule that I can't do work on the Sabbath when I'm doing good for someone who needs it. Or him turning the tables over. He's confronting what is wrong. And in his anger... It fuels his ability to confront what was going wrong in the temple. Anger is always connected to what we love. We get angry as a response to defend someone we love, something we love, or to confront someone who, who would do harm to someone we love, or something that is going to harm someone we love, something we love, some idea we love. When anger is used to defend what is right or confront what is wrong, that can be godly anger. It can be healthy anger. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, be angry, notice, be angry and sin not. Right, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give not, no opportunity for the devil. Let me just say, something should make us angry. Something should make us angry. The killing of innocent babies through abortion should anger us. And just because our world has lost all sensitivity to that atrocity doesn't mean we should. Now, what you do with that anger matters. But there should be genuine anger at this. The numerous instances of racial and gender injustice in our world should make us angry. People are literally being killed today because of the color of their skin or because they were born as girls. That should anger us. It's wrong. So not all anger, not all anger is sinful. But let's be honest, because I'm, I'm talking about big stuff, and, and maybe you're like, okay, I can be angry at some of those things that I know are clearly wrong. But most of our day-to-day -day anger is not righteous anger, is it? Most of our dangerous anger is what I would call poisonous anger. It's the kind of anger James warns us against. How can you know that when anger is poisonous and sinful? 
He gives us one marker when it's quick. When sinful anger is quick. Anger that is rash and out of control, that's likely sinful anger. Particularly when our anger leads to sinful words. He's connecting anger to our speech. So he's like, you want to know if it's, if it's righteous or sinful anger? Listen to the words coming out of your mouth as a result of that anger. That's why James cautions, be slow to anger. What he's actually saying is, have the same character as God. Do you know that? When God revealed his, his glory to Moses in Exodus 34, he proclaims, as, as he covers Moses, he says, all my glory is going to pass by you. And then he proclaims his name, his glory, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. What? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Aren't you thankful that God is slow to anger? Even when it's justified? How awful would it be if God dealt with anger like we deal with anger? Verse 20 again. James explains why we should be so cautious of anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God means the kind of righteous living that God approves of. He's not saying if you live a certain way, you can be righteous before God. You can be justified like in, in terms of your, your salvation. No, he's talking about the kind of living that God approves of. This is righteous living. And he says being quick to anger is sin because of its failure to listen and reflect before making a judgment call. Quick anger is the opposite of wisdom. It's foolishness. How do I know? Because this isn't the last time James is going to talk about our words or wisdom. In chapter 3, you might want to turn your, your attention to chapter 3, verse 17. James says this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Lots of things connected to our speech, our attitudes. Quick anger is rooted in a sense that you know right away the right response to a very complicated situation. You know what that's called? Pride. That's pride, not humility. We think the opposite of anger is self-control, right? If you struggle with anger, and I've, I've struggled with anger, if we think we struggle with anger, I got to get more self-control. Well, I think you got to dig a little deeper because if you do, you'll find that the opposite of anger is not self-control, it's humility. Because the root of anger, if you keep digging under the root of sin, of anger, when you get deep down far enough, you realize, oh, whoa, it's rooted in pride. Think of the last, let's do a thought experiment. Think of the last time you got angry. Right? I'm not, we're not, we're not talking about theoretics here, right? This isn't like physics where you're like, oh, that was cool. Thanks for that lecture. I, that means nothing. No, this is real life. All right? Think of the last time you got angry with your spouse, child, a parent, an in law co-worker, your boss, a fellow driver on the road. Now we're talking. 
right? Let's get down to the nitty-gritty here. You got, you got, you got the picture in your, in your mind, right? There's like two or three of us who are like, I don't ever get angry. No, no, you do. I'm frustrated. No, that's anger. I just speak my mind. No, that's anger. All right, here we go. Ready? What were you doing in that anger? Weren't you acting like you knew with certainty what ought to happen in this situation? This is what you should have done. This is what we should have done together. This is what that person should have done. This is how the outcome should have been. And it wasn't that way. And that's why I'm angry. Because you know exactly how life should go. And the other person is not listening to you when you wanted them to. And that's the reason you got angry, isn't it? And you say, well, I don't know if that was anger. Because, let's, let's, listen, anger can manifest itself either outward or inward. Some of us are good at masking anger. Some of us are outward. We, it's very clear, right? Yelling, blowing up, throwing things. That's anger. We're all like, yep, that's an angry guy. She is angry. But inward anger is just as bad. The bottling up the nursing a grudge, the becoming bitter, the passive-aggressive behavior. Make no mistake, all of those are forms of sinful anger rooted in pride. Don't you see? Beneath all of our sinful anger is a power play for who is really in control, either God or me. And I'm making a play because I want to be in control. Because I got to work this thing out because I can see what the right thing should be. And I got to get everybody in line with me. And God's up in heaven going, oh, really? How's that worked out for you? Not as good, huh? Maybe you're not in control. In my sinful anger, I'm trying to usurp God from his rightful place of ruling over my life in the universe, and that is pride. And since I know I can't ultimately be in control over all things, then what I do is I use my anger to get what I want, what I think is best. And when I do that, I'm defending the wrong thing. If anger is the emotional response to defending what is right or, or, or confronting what is wrong, when I'm angry, sinful anger, I'm defending the wrong thing because I'm defending my own image. I'm defending my pride that I'm right. And James doesn't mince words when talking about this. He says, my beloved brothers and sisters, he's warming them up. He wants them to hear his heart because he's about to nail them. Because he says in verse 21, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Come on, James, can you, can you not lay it on so thick? Can you say, put off your frustrations and your annoyances? That's how I see it, James. When's the last time you thought of your anger or your, your, your talking too much, you're not listening well, as filthiness or rampant wickedness? That's what James is saying. The first step to being cleansed is to first accept the reality that we're dirty. And so it leads to this third point. You can change through humbly receiving God's word. I'll show you the connection. 
to our words, our anger, and God's word. Notice he says, all filthiness and rampant wickedness. All filthiness, it's, it's a picture. He's literally giving them a word picture. It's the idea of, of having dirty clothes that are all stained and muddied. All right, right, you picture a child coming in from the outside, and it's not like, oh, John, you got a little stain on your knee. No, it's like, oh my goodness, you are filthy from head to toe. Don't even step inside. Strip down, you're going straight to the tub. Right? And, and every young parent knows what I'm talking about. And your grandparents are like, thank the Lord, I don't have to do that anymore. That's filthy. All filthy. And then rampant wickedness conveys the evil that's deep-seated in us. That springs forth from the bad attitudes within us. James is saying, this is what causes us to speak more than we listen and to get angry quickly and to sin in our anger. And he says, we need to own that. You're not going to put off, because he's going to say, put it off and then put on, receive with meekness the word of God, unless you own that you're dirty, that you're filthy, that you, get, that you got this mud all over you, that you're not some person who's like, I just got a little stain, I can just wipe it off. No, no, you can't. We can't take off sinful actions and put on something new until we acknowledge we have these simple things. And what do we put on? He says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Wait, I thought we were talking about our speech and our anger. Now we're talking about the implanted word of God? Yes. And he's going to continue next week. We'll talk about being doers of the word. But he says here, the way you put off the filthiness, the way you put off the wickedness of our speech and our anger is to start by humbly listening to God's words, which James calls in verse 18, the word of truth. How can you treat, or how you treat other people is the overflow of how you treat the word of God. That's the connection James is making here, and I don't want you to see it. This is why we study the Bible verse by verse so you can understand the flow of the arguments, what is being spoken, what is being said. How you treat other people is an overflow of how you treat the Word of God. If you're rude and if you're overbearing and condescending, it's because you're resisting the renewing work that God's Word is meant to do in your soul. When I don't listen well, when others speak, it's because I'm not listening well when God speaks through his word. He says the word which is able to save your souls. Yes, that means your salvation. Right? The word of truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ can save us from eternal punishment and grant us eternal life. And that's good news. But listen, the phrase to save your souls here signifies the broader idea not just he rescues you when you get saved. It's the idea that God's word has the ability to bring about the spiritual growth and the maturity as God slowly shapes you into the image of Christ. If you write in your Bible, you can write there next to it. That's called sanctification. That's what he's talking about. The, the entire process of saving us. When you humbly listen to God's word, when you let it sink in rather than just rushing through it, when you let it challenge you and confront you and comfort you and guide you, it will change you from the inside out. If you're a Christian, you've already been born again. 
Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. The word is, he, he, he caused us to be born by the word of truth. In other words, the word of truth has already been planted in you. The gospel has changed your very being. That's why we read 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, he says, now keep receiving the word with meekness. The word there literally means humility. Christian, are you slowly and humbly reading God's word to let it take root in your heart? Are you reading God's word in order to either get God off your back or in order to know him more intimately? You see, reading God's word cannot just be a cursory thing in your life if you're going to expect him to transform your character. You're going to have to sit with it for a while. You're going to have to soak it in. You're going to have to meditate on it. To approach God's word with meekness or humility means you're willing to take time to let the word of God dig deep into your heart and start pull, let God's word pull the weeds. Let him expose the roots and let him tear out the roots. If you think, I'm going to read my Bible for 10 minutes, great, I got it now. I understand it. I'm good for the day. That's not humility. You, th you think you understand? There are unsearchable riches in that one verse. And you're, you've just scratched the surface in 10 minutes, which is a good start. And you say, well, that's all the time I had. Okay, great, fine. You had 10 minutes. You had 30 minutes, whatever you had. Now, think about what you've read as you go out throughout your day. The Bible calls that meditation, meditating on God's word. If reading God's word is like food, eating food, which Jesus talks about it, according to Deuteronomy, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. God's word is like eating food. When I take food, when I take a juicy burger, mustard and ketchup and mushrooms and provolone, oh, sorry. When I take a burger and I, I chew it, right, I'm eating it. That's good. When you, when you read God's word, it's like eating a juicy burger. That's great. But then meditating on God's word is when the food goes down in my body and it starts digesting that burger and starts drawing out the nutrients from it. What little is in a burger? Right? It's drawing out the nutrients and it's applying it to my body to make me stronger. But that takes humility to recognize you need God's word that deeply, that desperately. Not just the 10 minutes, the 10 minutes that carries on throughout the day where I'm remembering, I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm turning it over and over. What does that mean? And how does that apply to my heart and my life? Two basic ways to help you listen to God's word really briefly. Study God's word on your own. That's first. Prioritize time in your day to study God's word for yourself. Generally, I suggest to people first thing in the morning before everything else crowds out your day. But it, there's no rule about that. It could be during your lunch break. It could be during your commute to work, whenever it is. Now, can I just talk to children and students who are here? I want to especially encourage you to start this habit now. One of the strongest indicators of whether a child who grows up in the church will grow up and continue in the Christian faith and not turn away from the faith is whether they have developed a desire and a habit to study God's word for themselves. So parents, other adults who are responsible for our children, 
encourage them, equip them, help pray for them that they would study and read God's word and that it would become the implanted word of God which can save their souls. Second, study God's word with others. We've talked about this numerous times and we see it throughout the New Testament. Pastor Andrew read at the the call to worship, which I didn't even, I had forgotten that he wrote it and I had this in my notes, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I'm not just called to teach God's word. You are called to teach one another God's word. And that happens in Bible studies and in small groups. It happens when the word of God is preached here on Sundays when we gather. And again, this takes humility. It takes humility to learn from the other people in your small group. It takes humility to learn from a a flawed person who's preaching. It takes humility to say that, that I can learn from others. Man, I thank God for my small group. The men in my small group meet on Tuesday mornings and, and the way that they draw out God's word in ways after I preach a sermon, I'm thinking, and then they, we talk about it. I'm like, man, I wish I had talked to you guys before the sermon. And maybe I should do that. The kind of soul work that I'm talking about takes time. It's slow. We want quick results. We want to microwave our faith and God says, no, I want you to plant I want you to see me planting the seed in and you watering it and tilling the soil and letting the sun shine out and, and, and waiting for time, slowly. Because God's word has the power to transform us in the image of Christ. That's the goal. Remember, when James talks about the word of truth in verse 18, and here, receive with meekness the implanted word, he's talking about specifically, uniquely, the good news of Jesus Christ. He's saying you need to keep receiving with humility the gospel message. Which means he's talking to both non-Christians and Christians. For all of us here, the gospel says two things. And we say this at Grace regularly. The gospel tells us two things. First, the gospel tells us what? You're more wicked than you ever imagined. You're more wicked than you ever imagined. You say, oh, that's where Christianity, I can't handle it. Christianity always starts so negative, so harsh. No, no, it's reality. You see, you're so used, it's reality, you know it. Apart from Christ, you and I are moral failures. And you say, that's too strong. Okay, it literally took the death of the Son of God to rescue you. That's how bad we are. Nothing else would work. So when we fail to listen well, and when we speak so quickly, and when we get angry quickly, we forget what it took to rescue our souls. And the reason why the world is so messed up is not because of, of, of governments that are corrupt, or because your boss is a jerk, or because your spouse doesn't listen and love well. No, it's because you and I are sinners. And if, if you struggle with sinful anger, or you speak more than you listen... You are denying the reality that you are more wicked than you ever imagined. And you need to own that. So that then the second part of the gospel might give you the freedom and the, and the transformation that you need and long for. Because the gospel says the second thing, that in Christ you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. 
In Christ, you are more loved, more accepted than you ever dared hope, than you ever could imagine you, you, were, you could be. Listen, the gospel tells you you're not just a moral failure. You're a moral failure who is loved lavishly by a heavenly father. Oh, now, we're now, now the view has changed, isn't it? Now the view isn't just prodigal son. I'll just try to go back and be a servant to my father. I've blown it. I've ruined it. No, now the picture is heavenly father, perfect father, wrapping his arms around a messed up child, wrapping his robe of righteousness and saying, you've come back? I'm going to throw a party. That's who we are because of Christ and in Christ. Your love beyond belief. God didn't just have to send Jesus to die for you. He was, it was his plan all along. From the foundation of the world, he knew he would send his son to rescue you, and he did it because he loves you. He's been pursuing you and I ever since Adam and Eve blew it. He's been looking for us. He's been pursuing us. And God sent Jesus to live the life that you and I should have lived. He was perfect. He never sinned, never had sinful anger, never spoke at a turn lives the perfect life, and then he gets condemned to death on a cross. Something he didn't deserve. And yet on the cross, he knew what he would have to do. He would have to drink the cup of sin on our behalf. He would have to become sin. He became sin who knew no sin, and he died on our behalf. He bore all of God's righteous anger against sin. He took the punishment for our sin. And he rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven and adopted into God's family. And we experience that forgiveness. We experience that adoption. Not by working really hard to earn it. Like whatever your other religion says. If you can work your way up to God, God might accept you. Christianity says you could never work your way up. And so God came down to you. God came down to us. And he did it all for us. And we receive forgiveness and adoption by sheer grace. As a gift, he gives us this great treasure and he says, receive it by faith, not by works. And when we receive it, when we receive the implanted word, it transforms us into the kind of people that he has designed and envisioned us to be. If you're not a Christian, you can receive that today. You can receive the good news of Jesus today. You can be forgiven of all, everything you've said. You said, I've said horrible things. I've done horrible things. And now I have to live with it the rest of my life. And you may have to, but God can come and wrap his arms around you and say, listen, for all of eternity, that will not define you. I will define you. If you come home, come home to him. Christian, when you think about what Jesus did for you, when you rehearse the gospel in your heart and mind that he gave everything for you to eliminate your debt, it will, it must humble you. And you won't feel the need to speak your mind or have your position validated every time. You won't have to stay angry because the gospel is doing its work in you slowly by, and slowly it will do it. And by God's grace, as you receive with meekness the implanted word, the gospel, you will, we will be a people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we want to own the reality of all filthiness and rampant wickedness. 
so that we can embrace the new reality that in Christ we have put off those things and we have put on Christ. The beauty and the glory of Christ is ours. You don't see us. You don't define us just by our sin, but by Christ's uh, righteousness. I thank you, Lord, for this new reality that allows us to now be who we already are. As James will say, that we don't, won't just hear the word, but be doers of the word. God, we invite you, we beg you to work in our hearts. We want to be a counterculture as a church. We want to swim against the tide that everything around us is an outrage culture. Get upset, speak your mind, and we want to say, no, that's not who we are. We want to listen well and love well and dialogue well, even as we hold on to our convictions. God, we need your spirit to do this. For, for the glory of your name on display through Grace Baptist Church in this community, in this county, in this state, in this nation, and for all nations, do this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.